love of God transforms our deepest, darkest sin. Hmm. If you want to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 10, Luke chapter 10, that's where we're going to be this morning. Again, if you're new this morning, uh, we want to welcome you. Uh, my name is Ben. I think I forgot to introduce myself earlier. Uh, if you want to stick around after service, I'd love to meet you. Or if you want to fill out that Connect card, we'd love to connect with you. Um, Luke chapter 10 this morning, we're going to look at the parable of the Good Samaritan. A very familiar text to some, but we're going to look at it a little differently this morning. Verses 25 to 37 is where we'll be. 25 to 37. Hear the reading of God's word. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among the robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend... I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. I want to tag our text today, seeing and loving, seeing and loving. Let's pray before we dive in. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that your word is sufficient for all of our needs. What you say is enough. And so, God, we pray today that your word would work into our hearts and our minds, our bodies, all of our life, and transform us even more and more into the image of Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, over the holidays, our, extend, our extended family did one of those escape rooms. Have you seen one of those or, or heard of those? Uh, if you've never seen an escape room or heard of it, an escape room is basically where you go to this place, they lock you in a room and give you clues on how to get out, and people pay for that. I mean, I don't know how that works, but someone decided that was a great business model and we fell for it. But it's actually a lot of fun, and it's a great challenge, and if you love puzzles, it's, it's kind of just a cool way to do that. But we as a family, we had seven adults go to this escape room together, and this particular game was themed around pirates. 
And so the, the storyline that we're trying to figure out is we had been locked in the bottom of this pirate ship. And I guess the head pirate is going to come in an hour and, and take us all out. So we have to get out before he comes in an hour. I think it was something along those lines. And so we are put in these two little jail cells in the bottom. And we have to get out of the jail cell and then out of the room and then out of the whole place. And so we're going around this place looking for all these clues, and, and one clue will lead you to the next clue, which leads you to the next clue, and, and one particular clue we never actually solved, even though we won the whole game. We, we got within the hour. We won, but we never solved this clue. And the clue was something along the lines of counting the lanterns. And so we're looking around at the lanterns in this kind of dark dungeon room, and, and we're trying to count each one, and maybe that is the number that we need for the code that we're trying to solve. And we counted them probably five, six times, and that number, I think it was like nine or something, wasn't the number. It wasn't working, and so we just started guessing numbers. And we guessed as long as we could until we finally got the right number, and it was three. But we never figured out what the clue meant, because that didn't make any sense until the end. We get to the end, and the lady who's running the game, who works at the place, she comes in, and she says, great job, you guys won. Do you have any questions? I'm going to show you around. And so she shows us what we missed, and we walk back into the previous room. We look up, and she says, do you see that lantern? And I said, yes. Yeah. She said, what's on the side of the lantern? On the side of the lantern, as big as you could imagine, as clear as day, is the number three. And all seven of us missed it. Not a single one of us saw it. It's right there, the number three. None of us could have missed it if we were looking there, but no one looked. And so we didn't see it. I mean, it happens all the time, right? We, we miss things. We miss things that are around us. We, we might miss that car that's pulling out in the parking lot, and so you get into that little fender bender because you weren't paying attention. Or maybe you're watching a show, but you're also on your phone, and so you miss that great moment in the TV show because you're scrolling Instagram. Right? Or, or you miss something that's going on with your kids because you had so many other things happening. You, you just miss that moment with the kids. Right? Things happen and we miss them, but it's even worse when we miss people. It's even, more, even worse when we miss people. Because people, right? there's people around you who are in need all the time. There's people who are in need at your job. There's people who are in need who sleep in your house. Right? There's, there's kids who, who need a present father. There's, there's co-workers who are going through grief and need someone to talk to. There's people in your neighborhood who don't know Jesus that need someone to introduce them to Christ. Right? There's people all around you that I would imagine if you're anything like me, you're missing some of them. They're right there, and you're missing them. How, how, do, how do we miss them? This is what I want to talk about today. We're starting a new series called Pray for One. Pray for One. Somebody say that with me. Pray for One. And it, it's going to shape really the whole year, our vision and our, our ministries this year, this, this theme of Pray for One. And it, it kind of culminates in uh, a prayer. You may have seen as you walked in this prayer that we're going to encourage everyone to pray daily. And it's this. God, give me one person today to share your love with. That's it. Just one sentence. God, give me one person today to share your love with. 
And really, the theme of the year is going to be around God opening up our eyes to see the people who are around us that we might reach out to them, whether it's at our job or in our home or on our, our uh, street in the apartment complex, wherever you live, wherever you are, God, show me the people who are around me and then use me. Use me to love them. Use me to engage in their life, to see the needs every day. Pray for one, just one every day. That's the prayer. Now, let's get into the text, because this is what I want to talk about from the, the parable here. Jesus was in the middle of teaching, right? Jesus is in the middle of this, this room teaching all these people, and in the middle of his teaching, one of the lawyers, now when you hear the word lawyer in the Bible, don't hear like somebody who's a, a trial lawyer in a courthouse or something like that. What he was was an expert in God's law. So he'd be much more like a modern-day uh, Bible professor, if you will. Like he, He's the guy who was the expert in what God's Word says. And so here's this lawyer who stands up in the middle of Jesus' sermon, and he asks a question. He says, what must I do to have eternal life? I mean, it's a great question. I mean, if you're here today and you don't know the answer to that question, it's a great question. You, you need to know the answer to that question. But what's strange about the question is the Bible professor is asking the question, right? He, he's the kind of guy who knows the answer to the question. He's not asking it because he doesn't know the answer. He's asking because he wants to challenge Jesus to see if Jesus gives the right answer or what he thinks is the right answer. And so Jesus brilliantly turns it back on him and he says, well, how do you read it? Right? You're, you're the expert. How do, you, how do you answer the question? And the guy gives the famous summary. He says, you got to love God and love your neighbor, right? And Jesus affirms him, but maybe a little too quickly. He says, you've got it, you're right. And the guy's like, oh, wait, I walked into a trap. He realizes Jesus shouldn't agree that too, or, uh, with that too quickly. And so he tries, as the Bible says, he tries to justify himself. He, he tries to make himself okay, okay or, you know, all right, by asking a follow-up question. And who is my neighbor, Right? Who, who exactly am I supposed to love? In other words, the lawyer is kind of showing his hand a little bit, saying, there, there are people that I see that I don't want to love. There are people that I see that I'm already aware of that I don't want on the list of people that I have to love. And so let's clarify. Who, who are my neighbors? That's what I want to look at today. How, how do we go from seeing people to loving people? How do we go from seeing people to actually engaging with them uh, in the way that Jesus would? And that's what Jesus tells us as he tells this story. So let's first consider uh, the barrier to love, the barrier to love. Jesus begins the parable in verse 30. Look at what he says. He says, Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jericho or from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, as Luke says, it's, it's a downward. He's going down because it's a 17-mile trek through this little tiny pathway that's kind of clinging to cliffs. And, and it's this downward, dangerous slope. It, it goes down about 3,000 feet. I mean, could you imagine? I mean, and then on the sides of this pathway are are caves where these robbers would hide in the caves because they knew that basically, you know, people had nowhere to go. They're walking in this slender pathway and they could just jump on them, steal all their stuff and leave them. 
And so the, the road was so dangerous, it started to get the name the bloody way. And so you, you ask the question as you read this text, why would anyone go that way? There's got to be a different road. In fact, there is a different road, and there's a safer road and a faster road, so why would anyone go the road of Jericho? It's because there's something even worse on the other road. Samaritans. They, they will go this dangerous road to avoid the Samaritans. The Samaritans and the Jews hated one another. The Samaritans despised the Jews because the Jews were bullies towards them. The Jews despised the Samaritans because they, 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 were, despi they, were, uh, they were unclean and, and, and kind of half-breeds as, as they mixed with the nations. And so they despised one another for these different reasons, and they did whatever it took to avoid each other, even going down this dangerous road. And then on this road in the parable comes this man who's been a victim to robbers. They jump him, they beat him to a pulp, they strip him of his clothes, they take everything, they leave him for dead, right? And then along that path, as he's in the ditch, lying there, desperate for life, comes a priest. Now, this is, this is a church leader. You think the parable is going to say, oh, the priest is going to be the, the hero. He's going to come along and help, and what does he do? No, he sees the man, and then he passes by on the other side. And then along comes another guy who, who's a Levite, and the Levite was like a temple worker. So he was also a religious leader, and he sees the man just like the priest, and he passes by on the other side. The question is, why? I mean, this story is so familiar, and you can miss the, the heart of it, because the, the expectation would have been that these men know the Bible. They know what they're called to do, and they don't do it. Why? Because when they see the man, they see a problem. They see a risk. They see a cost. And they walk. See, we can see people as problems and not persons. We can see people as problems and not persons. Last month, uh, McDonald's, you may have heard this in the news. Last month, McDonald's started and opened their very first fully automated restaurant. Fully automated in Fort Worth, Texas. Some of y'all might drive, but you go visit it. Right? I mean, th this is a big move for McDonald's, but here's the thing. It, you can show up, you can order your Big Mac with fries or your Happy Meal or whatever, and it will show up on a conveyor belt. It will come out to you on a conveyor belt. You don't have to interact with anybody. In fact, the workers are still in the back. They're, they're still making the food in the back, but they don't interact, as far as I know, with any of the customers. It is completely automated. You order on your phone or on the kiosk, and the food just kind of magically comes out on a conveyor belt. Now, some of y'all are like, that sounds amazing. And some of y'all are like, that sounds terrible. And I think the reason that it's both appealing and appalling to some of you is the same. It's because there's no people involved, right? It means that there's no one there to mess up your order. There's no one there to wait in line. There, there's no one there to, to have a bad experience with their, with their customer service. There's no one there to have anything go wrong because there's no people but think about how dangerous that is because loving listen to this love to, to love it begins with seeing people right if if we try to eradicate seeing people if we try to live our life in such a way that people are not involved what, what's going to happen is we're not going to love because seeing listen if you see without loving it's going to create fear 
We, we, we start to see people as problems. We start to see people as the issues that are going on in their life. And, and we start to see that to, to really engage with them, to help them, to love them, to, to do whatever is needed there, it's going to cost us something. It's going to cost us our time. It's going to cost us maybe some money. It's going to cost us maybe some of our reputation. It's going to cost us something. And so when we see that person in need, we see a problem. I mean, ask yourself, when you see people in need, what do you see? What do you see? I mean, do you see a person or do you see a problem? I mean, think about it in your extended family. You just went through the holidays. Some of y'all saw some family you haven't seen in a long time. And, and, and you right now, you're thinking of that person. When you see them, do you see a problem or do you see a person? I mean, think about your coworkers, the people that get on your last nerve because they're not doing their job and you're doing your job. Or, or the person that's gossiping about you about something in the office and, and you can't figure out how to get over there and take that out. So it's just so much stress. Do you see them as a problem or do you see them as a person? Because what happens is when you start to see people as problems and just nuisances that if you could just get them out of the way and get your stuff on a conveyor belt without any people, you're going to be full of fear. The, the fruit of seeing people as problems is fear. But the opposite is just as bad. Listen, if you, uh, if you love without seeing, it's going to create pride in your heart. Right, if, And this is the person who skips the step of seeing. You just move right in and you've, you've assumed that you know the situation and you understand what's going on in their life. And, and so you're going to start making judgments about what they need and who they are and what's going on in their life. And so you have a whole narrative set up that you're going to fix their problem. And so you start loving without ever seeing. You start, I mean, in the church, we're, we're, we're bad at this because, you know, we want to love people. It starts off maybe with a good motive and, and, and we want to help. And so we, we step in to help, but we come with our own assumptions. We come with our own assumptions about what people are going through. We, we, we have our own preconceived ideas about what the poor need. We, we have our own understanding of what the disabled need, about what, what the, the grieving need, right? And in our good intentions, we, we think we're going to move in and we're going to solve the issue. But you end up fixing problems and you miss people. You miss people. See, this, this is why the pray for one uh, theme is, is going to be helpful for us. Listen to the prayer. God, give me one person today who, who I can share your love with. The, the assumption is that God is already working in your life. That the people he's placed in your life are there because God wants you to love them. But what you're doing is you're saying, God, open my eyes to see them. Open my eyes to see them in a different way. Maybe I've just seen them as an enemy. Maybe I've just seen them as a nuisance. Maybe I've just seen them as a problem. God, open my eyes to see them as a person who needs your love, that I can listen to, that I can grieve with, that I can rejoice with. Do you hear that? It's saying, I, I, I want to see them, and then I want to love them. But, but what's the connection there? How do you go from seeing to loving? Because the priest and the Levite didn't, right? They saw, but they never loved. 
How, how does that happen? This is where Jesus goes next. Uh, we're we're going to look at breaking through to love. Uh, this is the second point. Look at verse 33. It says, But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, here it is, he had compassion. Now, this is a plot twist no one would have saw, okay? People in Jesus' day would commonly tell stories where the, the regular folks were the hero and the religious leaders were the bad guys. And Jesus is kind of setting the story up just like that, where you got two religious leaders who do the wrong thing, and you expect that the hero of the story is going to be some regular guy, a regular girl, who comes along and does what they're supposed to do. Because then you can kind of stick it to the religious leaders, right? And, and kind of expose the establishment. That, that was a common way of telling stories. No one would have expected that the hero of the story was a Samaritan. I mean, they hated Samaritans. No one would have thought that the hero would be this despised and disgusting person in their mind, and yet it's a Samaritan. It's the least likely, most surprising person, and what leads him? Listen, what leads the Samaritan to be the person who actually loves? Here, here it is. It's one word, compassion. It's compassion. See, all three of these men, they saw the person in need. All three of them saw the man in the ditch. But only one of them had compassion on him. And, and this word compassion is, is fascinating because, uh, well, we'll get into that in a second. Only one saw compassion, but, and that's the, that's the thing here. Compassion is this link between seeing and loving. Right? What happened with the other two guys is, is they saw, but they never loved because there wasn't that length where there's a compassion that moved them to action. And so that's where you get this word, this compassion word. It's actually a really fun word in Greek. I'll, I'll teach it to you real quick. Splachna. Doesn't it sound cool? It's like one of the funnest Greek words out there. Splachna. It, it's, it means what it sounds like. It's like this gut reaction. It, it's, it has to do with your internal organs are just turning. Like the, it's splachna. That's what the word is. Jesus says he felt splachna, like there's a bowel movement coming. There, there, there's something stirring in him. There, there's something going on. And, and I don't know if you've ever had that kind of compassion moment where there's something in your gut that just moves you saying, I can't stay the same. I have to do something about that. That's what moves the man. He says, I, I felt compassion. I felt splachna. And it moves him. And so rather than passing by, the Samaritan presses into the heart of God for this man. He starts to move towards him to find out what his needs are. He begins to meet those needs. He binds up his wounds. He pours on him oil and wine, which was kind of like an, an ancient uh, pain reliever. And then he, he, uh, he, he's so injured, he can't lift himself up. So the guy picks him up, puts him on his own donkey, which means that he's now going to have to walk the rest of the 17 miles, right? Because now the man is on his animal. And so here he is taking him over to the inn to get help and to rest. And he gives the guy his credit card and says, whatever else he needs, I'm good for it. I mean, imagine what's happening here. This Samaritan, who everyone hated and didn't trust, takes a beaten up and bruised Jewish man into an inn. What are they going to think? He did it. I mean, he's risking his life here. It's that costly. But listen, compassion will lead you to costly love. It will lead you to costly love. This is a dangerous prayer. 
I want to be completely honest with you. This, this prayer this year is a dangerous prayer. God, give me one person to show your love to today. That is a dangerous prayer. Because you're going you're gonna to end up having somebody come into your life who, who's an enemy. Somebody who you don't want to love. Somebody who hasn't loved you. Somebody who, just like the Samaritan, has been at odds with this Jewish man, and, and he is the person that God put in his path. It's going to risk your reputation. It's going to put a pit in your stomach. But listen, love will cost you. It'll always cost you. It's one of the great misconceptions in our culture about love. We, we are told from every Disney movie that we watch as kids that love is easy it's it's beneficial it's it's convenient and the moment it's no longer beneficial and convenient to me then then we just move on to the next thing right here what god is saying here this this is going to cost you i mean jesus said it this way jesus in the sermon on the mount he said uh he, he said if you love those who love you what good is that even the pagans do that what Jesus is saying is the pagan culture has their own form of love, and it's called, I want to invest in someone else so I can get a return. And Jesus is saying that that's not biblical love. Biblical love is you give five and, and, and you lose all of it. <laughs> like that, that you don't invest five and get 500 back. But I, I was watching football yesterday, and they're running all these ads for, for football, uh, you know, betting on the games or whatever. And, and it said something like, if you bet $5, you get $200 back automatically. I said, how, how does that work? What, what is that? There's some kind of trick in the fine print. I don't know. But, but that is not love. That, that's not how it works. You don't give a little and gain a lot. Jesus is saying it, it's going to take an exchange. It means lowering ourselves to lift up others. It's an exchange of my discomfort for their comfort. I exchange my reputation for their restoration. I exchange my time for their inclusion. I, I exchange my preferences for their presence. I exchange my power for their empowerment. I mean, do you see the pattern of love there? It, it's saying that I'm going to exchange my life for your life, and it's almost always going to require more than you receive. And, and so we, we, it pushes against us because we like to create our, our categories of who deserves our love. I mean, straight people do, but gay people don't. Republicans do, but Democrats don't. Democrats do, but Republicans don't. Black people do, but white people don't. My friends do, but my wife doesn't. My kids do, but my husband doesn't. Right? But love, by its very nature, is undeserved. It's undeserved. There are no categories of this person is my neighbor and this person is not my neighbor. It's everyone. Now, many of us, you, you, you've loved people for a long time who, who have hurt you deeply, right? You, you, you've loved and, and not received love, and, and not only not received love, you've received hate and harm, right? What, what Jesus is saying is, is not to put yourself in harm's way. What Jesus is saying is even that person who's hurt you the most is still the person you're called to love. But just because you love them doesn't mean you have to put yourself in that place. But you are required to love them. You are required to pray for your enemies. 
You are required to, to bless your enemies. You are required to, to love them in the way that you can, but to always love them. I mean, if you pray this prayer, God, put one person in my way this day. Put one person. It can be dangerous. And you start to ask the question, when Jesus puts the bar that high, who, who can love like that? I mean, who, who loves like that? Who loves the enemies? Who, who, who loves the people who, who return hate to them? I mean, if we're honest, we, we all struggle with this, but Jesus tells us how here. And this is the last point, becoming to love. Becoming to love. Jesus finishes by changing the lawyer's question in verse 36 as, after he finishes the parable. He says this to the lawyer. He says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers. He's saying the lawyer had the wrong question. The lawyer was asking, who is my neighbor? And Jesus is saying, you should be asking, how do I become a neighbor? Do you see the difference? The man is trying to get out of neighboring, trying to get out of loving by saying, these are the only parameters. And Jesus is saying, no, you've got the wrong question. The question is, how do I become a a neighbor. And so the question is, how, right? He says to him, go and do likewise. But how, Jesus? What, what does this look like? How do I get the ability to do that? Well, listen to this. The two men who passed by, they, they knew all the answers, right? These are the religious leaders who knew the Bible. They knew the verses about uh, caring for the widows and the orphans and the marginalized. They, they knew the right answers. But the right answers weren't enough to move them to love. So what, what's the difference? What happened here? Well, what you see is even though they had the law, they, the law was not enough to move them towards action. The law was not enough to give them the obedience that they should have had because the law, the rules, are not what gives us the ability. The law God has given to us to expose that we have only inability. Right? The law is given to show us this is what you should do. This is how you should live godly and look here is what you are as a sinner. And so these guys, they knew the rules, but they didn't know their own heart. And what happens is the Samaritan, when he sees the man, he doesn't just see any man. He sees himself. He sees himself. He sees a man in desperate need. He sees a man who's been abused and ostracized and pushed into the ditch. He, he sees his own Samaritan people. He sees, this is my experience. I know what, it likes to be, what it's like to be that man because that man is me. And what happens is he sees himself and as he identifies with the lowly, as he identifies with this person, he's moved with compassion because he knows that he needed a neighbor just like this guy. Tim Keller said it this way. He said, you'll never be a neighbor until you know you need a neighbor, right? To put it another way, we, we become a neighbor by receiving our neighbor. See, we've been shown mercy by the true and better Samaritan. Jesus, despised and rejected by us, came to us in our desperate situation. We were beat up in our own sin. Our own clothes of righteousness had been torn to pieces, leaving us exposed in guilt and shame. We were lying there half naked, half dead, and exposed to everyone on our last breath with no help in sight. But then our neighbor shows up 
As the Bible says, in the fullness of time, Jesus comes. When no one else cared, he cared. When no one else would stop, he stopped. When no one else would move towards us, he moved towards us. He looked at us with eyes of compassion and said, I'm going for that one. I'm going for that person. And Jesus comes for us. He came down to our level and bound up our wounds. He poured oil of gladness upon our souls. He picked us up out of the mired clay and set us upon the rock of salvation. He took us in. He paid all our debts. Jesus has been your neighbor. He has been your true neighbor. And so the question is, do you see yourself as the hero or the one who's been helped? Do you see yourself in the story as the Samaritan or the person in the ditch. Because the way we're able to love like that is only, is only if we see ourselves as the person in the ditch that Jesus has come to help, that Jesus has come to save from our sins, from our suffering, from all the wreckage of this world. Jesus has come to neighbor us. Have you seen that love? Have you experienced that merciful grace? That's what I want to ask you this morning. Maybe, maybe you're here this, this day and, and uh, you're still in the ditch, right? You're still that person who's, who's struggling and, and, and life of sin and suffering has, has overcome you and, and this life has been hard. And maybe today you're feeling that sense of conviction and, 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 and if you don't even know what to, to say about that or how to describe that, that, that's what that feeling is. It's that I need God. I need him to come into my life because I'm the person in the ditch who can't save themselves. And so to have faith in Jesus is not just this, I know all the right answers, right? The religious leaders in the story, they knew all the right answers. To have faith in Jesus is to say, I have nothing to save myself. God, come save me. Come pick me up. Pay my debts. Get me well. God, I need you. That's what it sounds like. But Jesus is here today wanting to do that just for you. Let's pray.